seated this morning. We're going to continue our study in Mark's Gospel. We'll be in chapter 9 if you'll turn there. Of course, Mark in the New Testament, second book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark chapter 9. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. We want to slip you a Bible so you can follow along with us. We're going to cover verses 7. We're going to start reading at verse 7 through verse 37. So Mark chapter 9. Again, if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. We want you to follow along with us. Read the text with us. Mark chapter 9, verse 7. As we've been traveling through this wonderful narrative of Mark's gospel, we know that Jesus, at this point in our study, has been at the height, really, of his ministry. As he's ministering in the Galilee region, people have been streaming into that area from all around the regions and all over Israel to hear Jesus as he is teaching, to receive a touch from him as they're receiving a healing, to be freed from demons, those who were demon-possessed, and Jesus working all kinds of wonders and, and miracles, but also Jesus speaking those words of eternal life. And as we have seen, Jesus um, here, the people are actually just about ready to crown him as king as we compare where we're at in Mark's gospel to the other gospel narratives. But Jesus would dismiss the crowds because as we saw recently in our study that in chapter 8, as we were finishing chapter 8, Jesus leaves that area of the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum where he spent most of his earthly ministry and he travels up north to the very far reaches of Israel and he goes to the base of Mount Hermon at a place called Caesarea Philippi. And there it was the Lord um, was asking his disciples, who are the people saying that I am? And they responded by, well, some are saying you're, you know, John the Baptist or one of the prophets. And then he got personal with his disciples just as he gets personal with us. And he says, who do you say that I am? And we read that Peter gave that great confession, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded to him by saying that, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And upon the rock of your confession, I'm going to build my church. That is, Jesus has been building his church for the last 2,000 years for those who in their hearts really believe that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You died for my sins, you rose again after three days, and surrendered their hearts to Jesus Christ um, as we receive forgiveness and as we believe in him. So the church has been built upon that confession and the confession that we have in our hearts. And then as we opened up chapter 9, we saw that Jesus would take three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, he would go up on that mountain, the high point of Israel, that is Mount Hermon, and there he was transfigured before them. Um, we saw that Jesus was talking with Elijah and Moses. Moses, of course, representing the law, which speaks of Christ. Elijah representing the prophets, the prophets pointing to Christ. We know it's all fulfilled in Christ. And we ended last week, in, or not last week, Wes was here last week, but two weeks ago in verse 7 of chapter 9. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. And let's pray. Father, we ask that this morning as once again we gather to study your word, that our hearts would be settled right now. As we've come into your presence this morning and 
drawn close to you through worship. I pray that we would now have our ears fully open and our hearts soft before you, that we would all be a people that are teachable. And Lord, we desire to be taught by you. We desire, Lord, to make application, to be encouraged and edified and instructed. So Lord, we do come to you this morning asking that work would take place. Lord, this morning we remember those who perhaps are going through difficulties and trials and even our own neighbors uh, in Fort Collins as uh, we see how dry the season is and even as we speak, uh, some are having to leave their homes. So Lord, we pray that we would get the moisture today that, that we're looking for. And Lord, that uh, those homes would be safe and that you would work. And Lord, uh, even in our own county, and uh, we've seen the fires rages and and Lord, we know that, um, that uh, we need that moisture. So we ask this morning, there's a few of us here as we come together in one heart. We ask, Lord, for your just grace and mercy. And Lord, I do pray that um, that would be extended to us this morning as well as we come and ask that you would just wash us with the water of the word. And Lord, refresh us and renew us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So here is this voice that comes from a cloud there on Mount Hermon. And, and I believe that cloud is speaking of the Shekinah glory of God. It, it's similar to the cloud, the pillar of cloud that was with the children of Israel out there in the wilderness wandering. And the voice of the Father saying, this is my beloved Son, hear him and how we need to hear him and listen to him especially as we live in a world where there's lots of voices that are all around us there's a lot of information that's out there and i know you experience uh, a similar thing that that i do that oftentimes well just about every week uh, i get information or somebody sends me something an article from this web page or this post you know you need to read and there's just a lot of things out there and i think that that we as Christians, we need to be wise and discerning on what is truth, you know, what is worth reading, what is uh, really, you know, um, worth uh, taking in in our time and stuff because people today can spend hours on posts or writing posts or on web pages and stuff. And my advice is, you know, that's okay if you want to do that, but, you know, eat the chicken and spit out the bones, Okay. And be careful that you don't just take everything at face value and say that this is truth. Because people have gotten themselves into trouble in doing that and standing on those kinds of things. One of the things I love about studying the Bible is this is truth. We know that this is truth and we can stand on the word of God. It's an absolute truth from Genesis to Revelation. And then Jesus in that upper room, he would say that I am the way, the truth, and the life. So the words that Jesus gives to us is truth. And so we want to hear what he has to say. And when Jesus would speak, as we read the Gospels, he would make it very clear what it was that he was saying. For instance, in John's Gospel, the religious leader sent some of the temple soldiers to arrest Jesus and as he was teaching there in the temple. And the soldiers returned to those religious leaders without Jesus and they said hey why didn't you arrest him and bring him back to us and they said never before as a man speaks like this man speaks we have talked about how Peter declared that Lord you have the words of eternal life and as we continue to journey through this gospel we will continue to see that what our Lord says is true and wonderful and practical indeed he has the words of eternal life but those words that he tells to us and gives to us 
are very contrary to what the voices of the world are telling us or screaming at us. For example, we saw in the previous chapter that Jesus said, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow after me. We are to deny ourselves. The world says that we're to exalt ourselves. We are to focus on ourselves. Jesus said that if you want to save your life, then you need to lose it. If you lose your life for my sake, then you're going to find it, you're going to save it. But you see, the world says opposite. The world says that you're to watch out for number one, do whatever you have to to get on top, to get ahead, to have influence. But we're going to see in this chapter that Jesus is going to say the way to greatness is to be the servant of all. If you really want to, to be first, you need to be last. And so our society around us and the flesh within us might say, no, that's not so. That's not what I've learned. The meek will not inherit the earth, but it's might that makes right. And if you want to be successful, then you have to flex your muscles. You need to know how to win and influence people. And so in our society, we see that we spend multi-millions of dollars in you know, taking seminars, attending lectures, reading the books on how we can promote ourselves how we can have power and influence over people, how to promote yourself and be great and successful. You want to be successful, truly successful? Jesus comes along and says that you need to hear what it is that I say. That if you want to be great, you need to be the servant. If you want to be first, then you need to be last. If you really want to experience life the way it was meant to be experienced and enjoyed, then you need to die to self. You need to live for me. It reminds me, as we talk about the words of Jesus, David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, as he was told by the Lord that I'm going to build you a house, David, and from your seed will come the Messiah. And David, in verse 28 of chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, said, Oh, Lord, your words are true. Your words are true. And when the son of David, that is Jesus Christ, comes along and tells us that if you want to be great, be the servant, his words are true. When he says that if you really want to experience that abundant life, then you die to self. You lose your life, you're going to see that his words are true. And as you believe in that, and as you have it worked out in your life, you're going to see that truly that your words are true, Lord. It is true. So here is that voice that, that comes from the Father. This is my beloved Son, hear him, and how we need to do that in our lives. He has the words of eternal life. In verse 8, suddenly when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore but only Jesus with themselves. So suddenly, there's Peter, James, and John. They look around, and, and Elijah and Moses are now gone. They saw Jesus only. And I really like that. And I think it's important for us to stop and, and consider that this morning. Because for us, it's so easy to begin to look around at others. We can look at others that we admire. We look at others that we look up to, that we elevate we have an elevated opinion or feeling of others. We can even put others on a pedestal, build them up. We can do that with people of fame, people who are very talented, uh, those who have position, uh, those who are even spiritual leaders. And so we put them in an elevated place. We have an elevated opinion of them until they let you down. 
which they, which I will do eventually. If you hang around here long enough, none of us are perfect. And we can say things and do things and, and make decisions. People can get discouraged by it or whatever it might be. And they had an elevated opinion of that person or that leader or whatever it might be. And they were put on a pedestal and suddenly, well, I didn't like what they said. I didn't like the decision they made. I don't like the direction they're going. And they get all discouraged and down because our focus is on others when it needs to be on Jesus. When people do come into this place, Calvary Chapel, I want to be, I pray for this every day. Lord, I want to be that one that the scripture says in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is an overseer to be blameless. And I want to be the best example that I can be of a godly man. That's what Paul told Timothy. Timothy, you be an example in word, in conduct, in, in your behavior, in faith, in love, in purity. You be an example to the believers of that. And I want to be an example of a godly man, a, a godly integrity being shown in my life and character. But I also have realized that I need to point them past me to Jesus Christ. You see, Moses and Elijah up there on the mountain with Jesus, they were giants of the faith, weren't they? Men of great integrity and honesty and humility. But eventually these disciples saw no one but Jesus. So I want to encourage you this morning. Have eyes for Jesus. He is the only one that is truly right on. He's the one that is the perfect Lamb of God in all that He is, in all that He says, and all that he does. You remember at the end of chapter 7 that the people were saying concerning Jesus, he does all things well, all things well, and indeed he does. So we come together this morning not to celebrate our togetherness and congratulate ourselves on our accomplishments and, and trying to elevate other people up. We come together because we have discovered that there is none other than Jesus, and we are to look to him. We are to worship him and learn of him. And that's what they discovered. They discovered that there is none other than Jesus. And so verse 9, now as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things, and how it is written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I say to you, verse 13, that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wish, as it is written of him. The last few verses of the Old Testament, as most of you know, that Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. There's four chapters in Malachi. So in the last few verses of the Old Testament, there's a prophecy that is there that says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is a term that we read throughout Scripture, and particularly in the Old Testament, that speaks of and includes that period of time where there's going to be judgment coming upon the world. It includes that time which we refer to as the tribulation period, that seven-year period right prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So the disciples are asking Jesus as they're coming down from the mountain here, hey, why must Elijah come first? We just saw him. He was up on the mountain. But it's already been revealed to us a few days earlier, down at the base of the mountain at Caesarea Philippi, that you are the Messiah. 
So they were, were a bit confused here. Now Jesus in verse 13 says that he has already come. In Matthew's account, it says that the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Jesus saying that John the Baptist, as having fulfilled in a real sense the, the promised coming of Elijah. Now you might recall in Luke chapter 1, at the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist to Zacharias, his father, an angel comes as Zacharias is there in the temple in Jerusalem. This angel, probably Gabriel, because he's associated with announcements concerning the coming of Jesus. And, and here is John the Baptist, that he is the forerunner to Jesus. So when the angel came and appeared to Zacharias, he said that you and Elizabeth are going to have a son. And, and they were past the age of really having children, and, and Elizabeth had been barren. So you're going to have a son. His name shall be called John. And the angel said that he would go before the Lord to prepare the way, and that he would do so in the spirit and power of Elijah. So John the Baptist, fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament, of the book of Isaiah, that he would be that voice in the wilderness saying, prepare the way of the Lord. And our Lord here indicates in some way that John was the fulfillment of that prediction about Elijah. John the Baptist came in the power and spirit of Elijah. So isn't that interesting? But here's another thing. When the religious leaders came to the river there at the Jordan River and asked John the Baptist, are you Elijah? He responded by saying what? No. So John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, in his first advent came in, in the same, or that is, spirit and power of Elijah, preparing the way. He came preparing the way of the Lord. And I believe that Malachi chapter 4, in that prophecy, that I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, that that will take place in the tribulation period. You say when? Revelation chapter 11. You can read it. And in Revelation chapter 11, we're going to see in the first half of that tribulation period that I believe is Elijah that is on the scene, the two witnesses. And you see, the reason that John the Baptist was, was considered one coming in the spirit and power of Elijah, that he prepared the way of Jesus' first advent, his first coming, just as Elijah is going to be that witness in Jerusalem preparing people for the second coming of Christ when he will come to rule and reign. And the two witnesses there will be evangelizing, as you read chapter 11 of the book of Revelation, working miracles there in the land of Israel. And I believe that the scriptures show us that it will be Elijah because the witnesses have the power to shut the heavens and so there is no rain and also to call down fire from heaven. Now that's the ministry of who? That's the ministry of Elijah in 1 Kings. We also know that they have the power to turn water into blood. That speaks of who? That speaks of Moses. So these two witnesses spoken of in Revelation that will come on the scene in tribulation period. And as most of you know this, but perhaps if you're new to, to study the scriptures of the prophecies concerning the coming of Jesus, as you look at those prophecies of the Old Testament, some of those prophecies spoke of Jesus' first coming, and some spoke of his second coming. And those prophecies so confused the Jewish scholars and scribes and rabbis before Jesus' day that some thought, hmm, perhaps... Could it be that there's two messiahs that are going to come on the scene? One is going to be the suffering messiah to fulfill the prophecies of Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. 
And then there's going to be another Messiah that's going to be a conquering Messiah. They would call that Messiah the Son of David. Now, we've seen people call out to Jesus as we've gone through Mark's Gospel so far, Son of David. It's a title. It's it's a recognition that, that you're the Messiah because Jesus, as we know from the Old Testament, would be a descendant of David. So there are those saying Son of David, and they believed that the Messiah would come in the spirit of David. David, who we are seeing on Wednesday night, and are going to continue to see, bringing Israel to its greatest power militarily. He's the one that conquered his enemies from all around Israel to give Israel peace. And so they would call the conquering Messiah, Messiah ben David, son of David. The suffering Messiah, they said, would follow in the pattern of Joseph of the Old Testament, the book of Genesis. Joseph who was rejected by his brethren, righteous Joseph who suffered. So they said that the suffering Messiah would be called Messiah ben Joseph or son of Joseph. So the two comings of Messiah were very perplexing to those who were studying the prophecies before Jesus' day. Now from our perspective, as we're on this side of the cross, we know that there's two advents, his first coming, Jesus is going to and did suffer and die for the sins of the world. In his second coming, he is coming to conquer and set up his kingdom. And we will read as we travel through Mark's gospel that he's going to talk very specifically and promise that he's going to come back again. Verse 14, And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. And immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him and greeted him. And he asked the scribes, What are you discussing with them? So Jesus comes off the mountain, And here is the good shepherd. He sees that his sheep are in trouble, his disciples. The scribes are discussing with the disciples. Now, I don't think that they're really discussing theology here because we have seen very clearly that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes are mounting their opposition against Jesus and his disciples. They're not open to Jesus' ministry. Matter of fact, they are plotting even at this time how they might put Jesus to death. So the the scribes are talking with the disciples, discussing with them, probably disputing with them, until Jesus is going to go right to their defense. What are you disputing with them about? And that is a true heart of a shepherd. You see, a true heart of a shepherd, and Jesus, of course, being the good shepherd, he is to not only feed the sheep, tend the sheep, take care of the sheep, but also the call of a shepherd is to guard and protect the sheep. Protect the sheep from the wolves coming in. And we see that in David's life as we've seen that David, that shepherd boy, was telling Saul that when the bears and the wolves and and the lions come, that with my sling and my staff I protect my sheep. And we need to protect those wolves that will come into the church that perhaps will bring in false doctrine or try to poison the church full of murmuring and complaining, bringing division. And part of my responsibility is to guard and to protect the sheep. We see that with Paul the Apostle. When he was given his farewell address to the elders of Ephesus, he said, you're not going to see me any longer. But he would say that I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves are going to come in among you, not sparing the flock. And men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. Don't you remember how I warned you day and night with tears? I've warned you. And he said, therefore watch. 
And here is Jesus. He sees these scribes talking to his disciples, and Jesus has concern for them because they were not yet that far along in their understanding. And he moves right in and he says, All right, what are you disputing with them about? In verse 17, Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit, and wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. And he answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. So a father comes to Jesus. Jesus comes down from the mountain. It's been a number of days since Jesus left all the disciples, took Peter, James, and John. We know six days that go up on the mountain. He's transfigured. He comes down from the mountain. The rest of the disciples, the other nine, have been down on the base of the mountain, waiting for Jesus and Peter, James, and John to return. And during that time, for what length of time, we're not sure, but all of a sudden they're dealing with this father who has a son who is demon-possessed, the son is. And this demon would cause that son to gnash at the teeth, foam at the mouth, throw himself down very violently. And we are also going to see that the father is going to tell Jesus that he's trying to destroy himself. He throws himself into the fire, into the water. This is a very difficult and very serious situation. And the father says in verse 17, he has a mute spirit. Now, in the eyes of the Jewish contemporary exorcists, they would say that this was a particularly difficult, if not impossible, demon to cast out because they believed that you had to learn a demon's name before you could cast it out. And if the demon made someone mute, then you couldn't learn his name. So the fathers asked the disciples to cast out the demon. Hey, we discussed this, verse 18, that they should cast it out, but they could not do so. So Jesus says, oh, you faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? Or in other words, how long should I put up with you? So who is Jesus calling a faithless generation? Is he referring to the contentious scribes? To this desperate father? Or to the unsuccessful disciples? Now we did see in chapter 6 of Mark's Gospel that when Jesus sent his disciples out two by two, that he gave them power and authority to work miracles and over all demons. They came back and they said, even the demons were subject to us. We were casting out demons out of people. And now here is this demon that they can't cast out. They've already been given the power and authority, and he says, oh, how long shall I bear you or put up with you? So why couldn't they cast out the demon? Well, let's read on, verse 20. Then they brought him to him, that is the father, and he said to him immediately, or that is the demon-possessed boy, the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can't do anything, have compassion on us and help us. In verse 23, Jesus said to him, If you can't believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. And then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him. And he became as one dead, so that many said, He is dead. 
But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And then verse 28, And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, This kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. So first of all, a number of things is we just read this text about this boy who's demon-possessed. The father coming to Jesus. The disciples not able to, to cast out the demon. Notice the father's honesty here. His honest unbelief. He says, if there's anything that you can do, please have compassion on us. It, please help us. And it was simply an honest statement of where he was at. And Jesus gently challenges him. He says, if you can. It, it's better translated, I think, if you will just believe. If you will believe in a God who not only can, but in a God who will. Nothing is impossible. It can be done. And then immediately this man did a very beautiful thing, I think. He says, I do believe. But help my unbelief. And I know there have been times in my life that I've said in the honesty of my heart, Lord, I do believe, but Lord, I have to be honest, there is some unbelief. And I have to cast myself on the Lord just as this father did. I do believe, but I know that there's unbelief. Lord, you help me to believe. And that kind of faith, I think, is small, but it's like a grain of a mustard seed that is able to move mountains. In the moment that he said those words, at the moment that he cast himself in his own weakness back on the Lord, that's all the Lord really wanted. And our Lord spoke those words. His son was delivered. And you can sense the severity of the case. The spirit put up a fight even at the command of Jesus. He cried out. It cried out. It convulsed him. It left him for dead. It left him for dead. Will you underline that? And realize that that's what Satan desires to do with you and with your children and with your grandchildren. That is the fruit of Satan. To leave you, to leave your loved ones for dead. We are going to read in 1 Samuel chapter 30 when David and his men were away that the Amalekites came to Ziglag and burnt down their homes, took their possessions, and kidnapped their families, took them captive. So David and his men went after the Amalekites, and on their way they found this Egyptian who was serving the Amalekites. And the Egyptian had gotten sick, and so the Amalekites just left them for dead. Just left them there out there in in the desert, and David found him. He had not eaten and drank for three days. He was literally near death, and David found him and restored him and gave him food and water. And the Egyptian ended up serving David. And as I read that story, as I consider it, you see, I think that we are that Egyptian. Egypt speaks in the Old Testament of what? The world. And at one time, we were... uh, in the world and of the world, serving the God of this world, Satan. And he left us weak and sick and alone and desiring to leave us for dead. But then the Son of David, Jesus Christ, came and touched us in our hearts. We were refreshed and restored and strengthened and saved. And now we served him. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Come and eat of me. And you who believe in me will have everlasting life. He says, come drink of the the living water that I have to give to you. And he who eats and and thirsts and, and drinks of me will never hunger or thirst again. 
So who are you serving? And I hope and I pray that all of us in this room that we can say that I serve Jesus who has given me everlasting water, living water. I've taken of the bread of life. He has forgiven me and restored me and renewed me and I serve him because the enemy was going to leave me for dead and that's what he wants to do. And if anyone is here or you're in the coffee shop and you've never surrendered your life truly to Jesus Christ, I pray that you would do that this morning. That Jesus desires to save you because the world and the enemy is going to leave you for dead and only Jesus can forgive you and save you and understand that he went to the cross for you because he loves you. He wants to save you. He is the bread of life. And he says, come eat of me. And he who eats and drinks of me shall never die. And so here, back to our text, this demon tried to destroy this young man who was probably a teenager. Jesus picked him up by the hand and restored him. Jesus said that this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Isn't that interesting? Because my first point is this. Obviously, they were not praying and fasting. And maybe the disciples were thinking, what do you mean this kind doesn't go out by prayer and fasting? We didn't know that we were going to be faced with him. We didn't have time to prayer and fast. But I think that's the point. I don't think that Jesus meant prayer to be offered at the very moment because Jesus himself did not pray when he cast out this demon. I don't think he's necessarily talking about a certain kind of prayer that you say at the moment that you want to relieve somebody of a demon. What I believe that Jesus is saying is that I am calling you to a lifestyle of praying and seeking the Lord and surrender to Him and depending upon Him. Fasting, fasting is just denying the physical so you can concentrate on the spiritual. You see, chapter 6, they had the power to cast out all demons. And here, this father said in verse 18, you know what, I came to talk to your disciples about casting out the demon and, and yet they couldn't do it. And I just imagine, I just wonder, I, I think perhaps... That when this father showed up with this demon-possessed boy, that those disciples are saying, no problem. No big deal. We've done this before. We've been casting out demons. And they were relying on their own energies, their own confidence, their own strength. And Jesus is saying, listen, this time doesn't, kind doesn't go out by prayer and fasting. Uh, you should have been doing that all along. So that when this demon-possessed boy came along, they could have spoken the word of faith and there could have been deliverance and salvation. I think there's an important point in application that we can make this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, I'm sure glad that my son or my daughter or my grandchildren or those who I love or, or those that I care about, I'm sure glad they don't have any problems. I hope we're wiser than that. And God help us because we don't know the battle that they will be facing. And the strategy of the enemy, listen, the enemy, he's going to have his demons with him. They're going to have a meeting. And you know whose names are going to come up? Your children, your grandchildren, and your loved ones. Because Satan is a master strategist. And at the most opportune time, he invades the lives of our loved ones, perhaps when we're least expected, because he's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, as Peter writes in his epistle. Satan wants to pounce on, he wants to bite on, he wants to devour those that you love. And simply, what I'm getting from this is that we should be in prayer and fasting. That should be a part of our lifestyle, because we don't know what tomorrow holds. 
And if I hear Jesus right, you and I need to be developing a life of prayer, seeking him, depending on him, of, of seeking the Lord, surrender to him. So when the problems surface, you will be prepared, not just to be a crisis Christian. I am so thankful that when we have crisis, we can go to the Lord. Yes, we can. But I don't want to be a Christian that I only pray and seek the Lord when a problem arises. I want to have a lifestyle of seeking the Lord and praying for those that I love every single day. And for my children particularly, I'm reminded of Job. Every morning he got up and he sacrificed an ox for each one of his kids, reasoning that it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And what a glorious privilege and opportunity that we have as parents, as grandparents. If you're an uncle praying for your, your nieces and nephews and aunt, whoever it might be, those that you love, to be able to say more than I just hope that our kids don't get sucked into drugs and alcohol or gang activity or some kind of demonic activity which they are getting sucked into. I believe Satan is working overtime on our young people. It is unbelievable what it is that we are seeing. And parents and grandparents that are weeping as I talk to them weekly about what's going on in the lives of their children. And the enemy is working overtime on them. And we can say this morning, I'm going to seek my father praying and fasting and believing for deliverance. And I'm going to take my child as this man did here, this father did in Mark chapter 9 to Jesus. And I'm going to do it continually. Now, I do have to ask myself here, why weren't the disciples praying and fasting? Could it be, perhaps, again, that maybe there was a little bit of envy and jealousy that was going on amongst the, the other disciples in their hearts saying, well, you know what? Peter, James, and John, they always get to go up on the mountain. They get, you know, to see the miracles of Jesus. And Jesus obviously has his favorites. Now, I'm not going to pray. Are you going to pray, Matthew? No, I'm not going to pray. Are you going to pray, Nathaniel? Uh-uh. Jesus doesn't care about us. He left us down here on the bottom of the mountain. Why should I be praying? Jesus obviously has his favorites. And maybe, perhaps, I know that I felt this way at times, from time to time, why aren't you using me, Lord? It seems like you're using the other person, but never me. You have those you favor. We need to remember Galatians chapter 2, verse 6, God shows personal favoritism to no man. God loves you just as much as that person that you think that he shows favoritism to. God just has something different for you, a different race for you to run. And we know in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 12, that we have a race to run, to run with endurance. That Paul says, run the race to win the prize. He would also say that I'm determined to run my race with joy. So every single one of us have a race that we're running, and it's not the same race as the person next to you or somebody else in this room. We all have a race to run, and we are to be in prayer. Lord, what is the race that I'm to be running? And Lord, I know that I am to be praying and seeking you. And Lord, you want what's very best for me, because you've already given me the very best, your son. If, and if I can trust you with my salvation, I can trust you with my life now. But you see, if we begin to develop the attitude, well, God doesn't love me or see me or he doesn't want to use me, then we stop praying and fasting and we start murmuring and grumbling. And at that moment that you need the power of the Spirit, faith in your heart, a weaponry of warfare, you'll come up empty. You'll come up empty. 
The Lord loves you. He sees you. He has a race for you to run. He wants to work in your life in a wonderful way. But one more point I'd like to bring out before we leave this paragraph, and, and this, this is wonderful for me. Even though the disciples couldn't cast out this demon, even though they failed, failed Jesus, he didn't fail. And even though I might fail as a disciple of Jesus, I might fail you. The fact is, Jesus never fails. And that is what is so great. Jesus will never fail you. Even if others are not responding, even if others are not doing what you think they should be doing, Jesus never fails. So Jesus working in this situation when the disciples had failed, showing compassion on the Father and the Son, bringing deliverance to the Son, and then he departed from there and passed through Galilee, as we read in verse 30, and he did not want anyone to know it. Why? Because Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem now. He's only a few months from the cross. He's going to die and suffer. He didn't want to be slowed down. Isaiah 50 says that he set his face like flint to, to go to Jerusalem. So he didn't want people to know what his route would be because he needed to get there. In verse 31, For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Again, every time he talked about his crucifixion, he talked about his resurrection. I'm going to be killed, but I'm going to rise on the third day. They didn't understand. They're very confused. He's reminding them, Jesus, his disciples, of his mission once again. They had just seen his glory, his power, in two pretty spectacular ways. The transfiguration, the casting out of this difficult demon. Yet he reminds his disciples that his mission had not changed. He's come to die on the cross for the sins of the world. After the casting out of this demon, he reminds his disciples he's going to the cross. Colossians chapter 2, Paul writes, Having wiped out the handwriting requirement that was against us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. We are to be reminded from Colossians chapter 2 this morning, were demons and Satan defeated at the cross? At the cross. And that's where we can remind others that Satan and the enemy is defeated at the cross. And so verse 33, then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what is it that you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent. For on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be the last of all and servant of all. And then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, verse 37, as we finish, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. What are you guys arguing about there on the road? They kept silent because they disputed about who's going to be the greatest. Now, isn't that interesting? They've just been rebuked because they had failed to cast out this demon. Oh, how long should I put up with you? You know, faithless generation. So what do they do? They start arguing about who's going to be the greatest. You can kind of tell when a person is maybe perhaps insecure where their shortcomings because they will try to convince you about how great or wonderful they are. Jesus knows their hearts. He knew that's what they were arguing about. Now, some will look at this text and think, well, here Jesus has to rebuke these guys again. But as we read the text here, he doesn't rebuke them, does he? He actually tells them, reveals to them how to be great in the kingdom. 
And I think that is great because if it were me, I probably would have rebuked these guys saying, what are you guys doing arguing about who's the greatest? You, if you can just do one thing right, that would be good. But Jesus doesn't do that. He helps these guys. He wants them to understand what constitutes greatness. And the Lord is so helpful. This is how you can be great as far as the kingdom is concerned. He says, you guys want to be great? Then this is the pathway. It may not be by your ambition or it won't be by your drive, by pushing yourself, getting ahead of others and pulling others down, that you may rise above them. The path to greatness is to be last. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, you need to be the servant of all. Remember last time we saw our Lord say, if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. If you lose your life for my sake, then you'll find it, you'll save it. So if you want to be first, you must be last. If you want to be great, you must be the servant of all. And I know that the Lord shows me in his word through his spirit that, Jeff, if you want to be the servant of all, the, the word minister means servant, you are to serve the people. So Jesus never rebuked his disciples for wanting to be the greatest, but he does speak very pointedly and honestly in how that is achieved. Okay, you want to be the greatest? Then be the servant of all. You want to be first? Then you must be last. You want to really live? Then you must die to self. It's not as the world says. And you see, there are two kinds of greatness. There is the ambition to be applauded and, and, and approved by men, the ambition to be applauded and approved by God. And they're as different as night and day. And those who want to gain fame and attention and influence and power, the measurement of success in the world's eye is how many serve me? How much power do I exercise over others? How wide is the extent of my influence over others? How well do others know about my accomplishments? And I think that most of us have at one time have struggled with wanting to be known or admired or considered important and be noticed in the eyes of the people. But Jesus points out very clearly that true greatness is never found there. The measurement of true greatness, according to God, is how many do I serve? How many am I willing to minister to? It's humbling myself to be able to help others. That's the mark of greatness in the eyes of God. That is a greatness that has everlasting rewards. And you see, what Jesus says flies right in the face of what the world tells us and what our instincts tell us. Christianity is radical, and it will revolutionize your thinking. But if we try to achieve greatness according to man's way, realize that it will be nothing but a temporary, momentary achievement. And to drive home the point here, Jesus takes the child and puts his arms around the child and says, if you receive a child in my name, then you receive me. Speaking about humility, speaking about a child you know, a child doesn't always do a whole lot to elevate our name and make us famous. But you receive this child, you receive me, and you receive him who sent me. And Jesus said that you receive the kingdom as a child in childlike faith, humbling yourself in childlike faith and coming to me. And then you live your life and humbling yourself and receiving a child. And then you're going to be great. You're going to be first. You're going to live life the way it was meant to be lived. And so, Father, we thank you. We thank you again for these sayings that are true because your word is true. Jesus said, I am truth. And, Father, may all of us remember that always in our hearts. 
that the things of the world we filter through what your word has to say when it comes to salvation maybe the world and the world does say that you can save yourself or you can be good enough or there's many ways to heaven but your word says that it's only through Jesus Christ and what he has done for us on Calvary's cross is salvation found so I pray this morning if anyone is here or listening to this message if you're out in a coffee shop or perhaps on the radio that if you've never received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that is coming in faith. The scripture says that none of us can save ourselves, that we're all sinners. And the wages of sin is death. So the scripture gives us truth in saying that we are to repent, turn direction, and that we are to surrender our hearts to Jesus Christ, the one who loves you so much and came and died on Calvary's cross for you. Jesus died on Calvary's cross, shed his blood for the forgiveness of sin. And as you believe that he is the Son of God, the Christ, the Anointed One, the one who came and died for you, that he is the way, not a way, but the way. And as you surrender to him and ask him into your heart, that Jesus said that I come to give you life. And as you come and eat of the bread that is the bread of life, take of the living waters, you'll have everlasting life. It is coming and surrendering your heart. So we want to give anybody opportunity to do that this morning. If you never surrendered your heart to Jesus Christ, maybe you've come to church, maybe you've been a member of the church, maybe you thought the Lord could never forgive me. Yes, all manner of sin is forgiven. I don't care what you've done. But you confess that I am a sinner in need of the Savior, Jesus Christ. You come to him if he's knocking on the door of your heart. And you pray, Jesus, I surrender to you right now. I believe that you are the Son of God who died for my sins. And Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I confess I am a sinner. Forgive me my sins. Be my Lord and Savior. I believe that you were put into a grave and you rose again, just as you said. And I come in that childlike faith, humbling myself realizing that I need to turn to you and I do that right now. I surrender my heart to you. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. And if anybody prayed that prayer for the first time in the sanctuary, if you're on a coffee shop, raise your hand as well. Just put your hand up. We want to just recognize you. We want to pray for you. Anybody at all? Anybody this morning want to give their life to Jesus Christ in this service? Okay, Father, we do come as well. That, Lord, is we celebrate our salvation in this place. And we come with just reverence and seriousness to the communion table. And remembering that you are the one 